As a child, I would go every Saturday to a, a theater called the Pylon on College Street. And in those days, people were not worried about their children being kidnapped and, and murdered. And so we would, there would be a stream of children like lemmings, you know, coming from all of the streets down to College Street, a big street, and going to the cinema, the Pylon, where we would watch cartoons and we would watch uh, cowboy movies, you know, Hopalong Cassidy, Roy Rogers, uh, pirate movies maybe, kids, you know, good action kids movies and stuff. And then one day uh, I came out of the pylon and across the street, because where I was living had become an Italian section of Toronto. Uh, and even now it's called Little, Ital Little Italy, that, that section of Toronto. And across the street, there was a theater that only showed Italian films. It was called the Studio. Uh, there was enough Italian population in that area of Toronto to support a cinema that only showed films in Italian. And I came out of seeing a Hoplon Cassidy movie, and I saw people coming out of the studio across the street. There were no children, it was all adults, and they were all weeping, they were crying. And I was shocked because I, I thought, what movie could do that to grown-up people, to make them sobbing on the street together? So I crossed the street and I looked at the poster for the film and it was La Strada from Fellini. And of course, many years later, I was also watching La Strada, I was also weeping. <laughs> um, but that was the first time that I understood that cinema Movies could be art. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Welcome to Speak All Evil podcast you were warned about now on patreon patreon.com forward slash speak all evil i'm trent here with kevin cat and dave hey guys how's it going hey. great hey doing well this week we're talking about david cronenberg widely known as the master of body horror but is also one of my favorite all-time filmmakers if there is a desert island question about movie catalogs, singular movie catalogs, David Cronenberg would be a top finalist for me. You're talking about well over 20 feature films, starting all the way back in the early 70s, all the way through to 2014 was his last big feature. I think the man's a genius. Um, we absolutely have to talk about his biggest hit, the blockbusting pop culture smash career highlight, the Fly from 1986, starring Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. But I wanted to take it back a little bit, a few films before that, and talk about something earlier and less commercial, and even try to get um, a little bit more understated, which the David Cronenberg version of understated would be totally bananas in any other film catalog. So I landed on a movie called The Brood, from 1979. This is uh, three or four movies before The Fly, but it's a third or fourth, fifth feature film. 
And this is what I think of as the horror movie equivalent of a divorce album. It's a story that he has said he himself based on he and his wife. They were going through an acrimonious divorce and custody battle. So he made this movie called The Brood. And this is about a separated couple with a young child. The wife is having some mental health issues and goes away for treatment at a new age facility called Soma Free Institute, run by a guy named Dr. Hal Ragland, who practices a radical form of therapy that he invented known as psychoplasmics. And this is a process by which patients are encouraged to physically, outwardly manifest their repressed anger, hostility, and rage uh, in hopes that in this process of outwardly manifesting I guess one could sort of deal with uh, and, and process on the inside and maybe start to free oneself of this kind of anger. So it really, just from the names of this stuff alone, things like Soma Free Institute and Psychoplasmics, it really doesn't get more Cronenbergian. Um, classic, classic stuff. But again, I think it's a little bit more understated than some of the immediate thoughts like Scanners, Videodrome, Dead Ringers, and many, many more. I love this movie. I think it's totally bonkers. It's brilliant. Um, I watched it a few times. It's just, it's so good. Kevin, had you seen this before? Yeah, actually, thanks to your discovery of the Criterion Channel, I had never seen it, but when you pointed out the Criterion Channel back at the beginning of the show, I watched The Brood. It was the first uh, movie that I watched. And I am kind of ashamed to say, I'm not the biggest Cronenberg buff. I guess I just haven't spent a ton of time with his catalog. I mean, obviously, The Fly came out at a time when I was just getting into horror movies as a kid, so I watched that a million times. But The Brood, the first time you watch it, and keep in mind, Trent, your synopsis there was actually better than anything you're going to find online and would actually lead a viewer to go into the movie with a little bit of knowledge of what the fuck they're about to see. Because the first time I watched this, I was like, I have no idea what's going on. Literally no idea. This is a fun movie to watch, but I don't know if I love it because I have no idea what's going on. Then when I went back and watched it for this episode, when you picked it, this movie's so fucking good. And the last person I would want to be in 1979 when this movie came out is David Cronenberg's ex-wife. Oh, <laughs> must have been rough. Well, yeah, I mean, it's crazy. And, and I didn't know that until researching the, the movie for this episode. I had no clue that it was really, really personal for him. And that actually made it even more powerful to watch, I think. You're right to call it bonkers. It is all over the place and is definitely, I, I don't know that I'd say it's understated because you've got mutant little kids beating people <laughs> oh, to no. death with oh. hammers. But <laughs> Only if you're known for the fly and dead ringers would this be understated. Yeah, yeah. I, guess th I guess that's a good point. Kat, did you like The Brood? I did like The Brood. Um, surprisingly, I, I was expecting not to because of the, uh, the heads up I was getting from you guys about how it was written during, you know, the custody battle, uh, with the ex-wife, but I, I thought it was honestly like a very interesting interpretation of grief and rage kind of, you know, manifesting itself into this physical form. Uh, this woman had obviously been through a lot. I kind of wish we knew a little bit more about her background, uh, the the ex-wife in the film. 
Um, I kind of wish we knew a little bit more about, you know, what her mom really did to her because she seemed like a real piece of work. Uh, but this, uh, you know, she's been through a lot and she was lashing out subconsciously through these little demon, weird beaked children, uh, running around, uh, and she's using them to, you know, hurt those who have, you know, hurt her or wronged her in some way that she thinks, but obviously like subconsciously, um, it might be my own mommy and daddy issues, but I was like, yes, get them, get those people, get them little kids. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I was like, on, and honestly, the usage of mommy and daddy in this movie is so creepy. It's like right off the bat, they're like, daddy, 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 daddy. I'm like, oh my God, fucking please stop with the <laughs> mommy so talk. Oh. But it was interesting to me how he made the woman the vessel uh, for her own pain and grief. She was, you know, she took control of it and made it into something tangible which, you know, are these little creepy people running around. Um, but it wouldn't have had the same effect if he had obviously made a man m- manifesting all these things because she's got the uterus, you know, children can make life, so why can't they just make their grief into things that are running around? Um, was she evil? Yes. Should she have used her weird trauma welts uh, to make demon children? Probably not. Was I still into it? Yes. Uh, <laughs> but... I don't know, people are faced with trauma every day, and not everyone murders people, so it's kind of like when they're like, oh, well, he was he had a terrible childhood, that's why he's a serial killer. We have, we've all had terrible childhoods. Not everyone goes out and murders people. So I was like half on her side. I knew where she was coming from, but also, I mean, you should, probably shouldn't murder people. I think you missed the most important question, though, is should she have licked what she licked? <laughs> You know, people eat em- em- embryos. What is the the placenta they eat? Like, turn that into a shake sometimes, right? The New Age moms. So That's right. Yes. Lick it, girl. Licky lick it. <laughs> lick it, girl. Uh, you know, I always, I always call out, you know, when these mad scientists have these minions or these followers or whatever they do, uh, and I, I get in there with that retail detail. Like, this guy went out and got a bunch of snowsuits. He's like, oh, yeah. all right. It's like, all right, I'm at Rennie's. Uh, I'm going to need. I, I like that about it. I like that the these little monsters were almost like a an highly evolved like ulcer or like a kidney stone or something because it was like this toxicity that was inside you uh, that turned into these like really bad little gremlin things. Um, I This is not one of my favorite David Cronenberg movies, although I did really like it. Um, I couldn't get out of the zone that it was like the Hulk from the 70s that I used to watch. I used to watch Incredible Hulk, and mm-hmm. the the main homie, uh, the main character, looks almost like Bruce, the OG Bruce Banner. Yeah, good point. So I didn't think I, of that. I kept on the like hair. going, like, is that Bruce Banner? Is that Bruce Banner? Yeah, was don't make me angry. Lou Ferrigno? Was it Lou Ferrigno that did it? <laughs> you wouldn't like yeah, me when other I'm guy. angry. Yeah. The doctor is uh, Lou Ferrigno, uh, but it, I kept getting that like '70s TV action vibe because you know these were made uh, early in his career on a budget, and I respect that. Uh, but it's it's great. Uh, I, the thing about Cronenberg, he's not like Toby Hooper, where I compared everything to Toby Hooper's first output, and after that, nothing lived up to that for me. Um, with Cronenberg. I feel like 
as the decades went by and he's been here forever, he's gotten like this David Lynch of horror mm. vibe. Um, and I like to see where it started, but I think that he definitely honed his skills later on than this. But um, this is a great movie. Yeah, it. The I think that the first scene right away is so audacious to open your movie as a relatively unknown genre at that time filmmaker. The first scene with uh, Doctor uh, Raglan, played incredibly by Oliver Reed, who I was not familiar with. Man, Oliver Reed is so amazing in this. So this the movie opens right up with this new age guru therapist guy doing his psychoplasmics on a patient in an auditorium in front of an audience. And it's yeah. so crazy doing so the weird. role play, daddy, daddy, this and that, talking <laughs> to that guy about his, about his relationship with his father. And I mean, like misgendering him, like breaking him down and, and so the husband it? It in question said weakness is more acceptable in a girl. You must like, have got you right must have gotten it bat. from your mother. Yeah. <laughs> you must have gotten that from your mother. I mean, <laughs> some people want to get on like the Ellen show. I don't want to get on the Ellen show. I want to be in the audience there. That's the studio audience. How do we get those uh like sit in on like fucked up experiment? Well, that's what that's guys. what I thought was cool about like you have the husband in question here, the protagonist Frank. He's in the audience because he's come to get his daughter from you know she's been at Soma Free for the weekend or whatever their split is. So he's in the audience watching this whole display, and the look on his face, like people around him are saying, "He's a genius. This is brilliant. Yeah, they can't <laughs> believe it." And he's like looking. I've I've made that look so many times. And then when he when he walks out of the auditorium, just his whole body language as he's leaving. Like I've done it a thousand times. Like, holy shit! And it get me out of there. When, That's how I leave most places. When we went to go see actually. that podcast, <laughs> Trent was just rolling his eyes and grumpy the whole time. I'm like, stop. <laughs> these are our people. We gotta be. So we gotta be, we gotta right away, it. right away, you know, like this movie is opening. This you're you're not in for any kind of traditional horror movie. So the the real question is is Doctor Raglan evil? Because Great question. He, he puts out that vibe the whole movie and definitely is playing like, you know, the mad doctor or whatever. But sort of in the end, he kind of comes around almost like he realized how badly he fucked up. Mm -hmm. I didn't think he was evil. I thought that was a really good question. At first, you think he's going to be the embodiment of evil, but he seems more like the the mad scientist who just things got out of control. and. Yeah. Everything was going good, and he thought he had a real handle on his new therapy and kind of thought he was a genius. But he does seem to recognize that it's gotten a bit out of hand. He is it's a little like, more. He it's does. like when you, like, when, you, when you, like, clog someone's toilet, and they catch you, and you just have to be like, yeah, dude, I don't know. It just I put too much shit in there, and it just went everywhere. I'm fucking like, – he had that, like, transparency, like, let's let's take care of this. I know this got out of hand. My he bad. Has a very, I got very, this gun. <laughs> very opposite reaction uh, as uh, Dr. Herbert West, who would yes. in no way, shape, or form would ever stop his pursuit of his fucking mad science. Yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering why he didn't, after the one weird child manifestation popped out, he was like, oh, maybe I should put a pin in this and not let it continue before there's a literal brood of fucking nah. children I mean, running around. That'd be like if I was playing the guitar so good 
that I made another little guitar. <laughs> and I would be like, holy shit, I'm going to do that again. Yeah. I got to do, I got to try that again. You know what I mean? Like what? That'd be so you wouldn't cute. stop. No, I you guess. just got to start buying snowsuits. A lot yeah, of them. retail <laughs> detail, yeah. Dave, you have to buy so many <laughs> tiny guitar stands. Oh, so cute. <laughs> I I just the the monsters were good. The effects in this were good. Well, they were they were okay. Um, the uh, the effects were actually done by Alan Cotter, who has a huge filmography. One of them being Prom Night, which I am fresh off of watching just a mere hour ago. But I did have a hard time with the snowsuit aspect because every time that they showed the kids, especially when they're walking the daughter candy like they kind of like steal her and they're bringing her back to soma free they look like the fucking young kid from a christmas story when his mother dresses That's... him up to go out in the morning and he's like i can't move my arms <laughs> yeah. literally threat, all i could really. think yeah kevin who is the actor who plays frank in this because we just saw him in the void and offspring yeah both, it's art uh, hindle we can't get away yeah, from the guy and we also just saw him in uh in uh, invasion of the body snatchers dude we're like uh, yeah. Basically, the Art Hindle's biggest fans unintentionally right now. <laughs> I didn't even realize. He's like the Canadian Bruce Campbell. Every yeah. Canadian <laughs> yeah. horror movie. <laughs> yeah. Art Hindle. Was is this be Canadian? In yeah. Oh, yeah. that's yes. why they said Halifax. I'm like, where are they in? What? Is that in New York? I don't know where that is. It's in Canada. Well, Dave talked it, about guys. how this was made on a budget, and he actually got a, a million and a half to make this. Somehow, out of all the movies that we watch that become cult classics that made like $750,000 at the box office, The Brood made $5 million. This thing turned a profit for him. Not bad. But it, yeah. It was, it was made during, it was like sometime in the 70s until the early 80s. Canada had this law, this tax law, where you could have 100% of what you gave to a movie deductible from your taxes. So there's this huge Canadian film boom because everybody was using film production as tax shelters. So Cronenberg obviously took advantage of this. I, I don't think if you made this movie in a non-tax shelter environment that you're getting a million and a half, you know. Well, my wife and I are going through a divorce. I just watched the movie Kramer and Kramer about divorce. It pissed me off that it had a happy ending. So I want to make a movie about a woman giving birth to evil snow, you know, snowsuit snow children <laughs> that kill people with hammers. How's that sound? Is that was that why he made it? Because he saw Kramer versus Kramer. Yes, he was. His divorce was really bad, and he saw the movie Kramer versus Kramer. Despised the fact that it ends up well, and was like, "Fuck that." So the crazy thing is, is that the wife that he was divorcing, part of the reason was because she actually fell in with a psychotherapy cult, and the legend has it that during the making of this movie, he actually had to fly to California, get his daughter, and bring her back to Canada. I hope the daughter's okay. <laughs> I don't know how I would feel about my father making a film like this about my fucking mom. But... Uh, his son makes movies now. It, I believe he's made two now. have been very well received. The most recent is called Possessor, and I can't wait to get to it. But it sounds almost... like he's going to be following right in the footsteps. Mm. Antiviral was great, too. Oh, you saw that? Yeah, I almost pulled the trigger on yeah. Possessor very recently. I was kind of floating around Me the too. rentals. My first favorite Cronenberg tell in this is, you know, things are proceeding like not that bizarre for late 70s exploitation horror movie. And then Frank, who has decided he's going to fight for custody, sole custody of the child, that means he has to figure out what exactly is going on at Soma Free and what this Raglan guy is up to. So he 
gets in touch with a former patient who is suing Ragland. And the whole time he's talking to this guy, the guy is obviously unwell. He has this towel around his neck. And at one point, Frank wants to see, you know, what, what happened? What, why are you suing him? The guy pulls down the towel and it's just this like bizarre, disgusting growth coming out from the bottom, bottom of his neck. It's so weird. And that's the first moment you're like, oh, yeah, this is Cronenberg time, kids. <laughs> there it is. And then the other moment like that is at the, like, the climax of the movie. I'm still thinking this is pretty sedate stuff for the master of body horror. When the confrontation between Frank and his uh, separated wife, Nola, where he's trying to pretend that he wants her back so that we can put an end to all of this craziness and hopefully salvage the child and everybody can get out in one piece who hasn't already been killed. She, at one point, pulls up her uh, her dress, does this big reveal, look at me, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and she's got this giant, I mean, it's like Ugh. the ultimate Cronenberg moment and you go, oh, okay, yeah, here we are, we're right where we need to be and then it's just further off the rails from there oh, samantha she Egger, was so I guess, good was, yeah she was she really had a good in this great movie. Perform- i think she's i think she was a pretty big actress and she came up with a lot of the messed up stuff that she did so the idea of awesome. her licking her most recent uh, creation that was hers and cronenberg was making fun of the censors because in other cuts of this movie in certain countries they were making that be censored Cronenberg was shitting on him because he said that the, the edited version, which I don't think we've ever seen, we see the uncut one, it actually made it, instead of licking it, it made it look more like she was biting, like going in to like bite her own oh. Well, that's Yeah, because that's whatever. what it kind of looks like at first, uh, and then it, it does to me, even now, it looks like that at first, and then... She's oh, releasing like, it yeah. <laughs> from the amniotic sac. And then licking it clean. Yeah. It's nature, guys. It's it's be- it's a beautiful thing. All right. It's motherhood. It right? is. Yes. It is. No. No, it's not. I'm sure you guys were in the delivery room, right? When yeah. Your children oh, yeah. were brought into this world. You get it. Well, they weren't hanging from a sack off the side <laughs> of Allison's stomach. She didn't rip it open and lick the top of Nora's head. So I had Listen. a slightly different experience. You know, I forgot to mention. Uh, Speaking of birth, uh, we did the cannibal uh, episode that my daughter was actually accidentally named cannibal uh, when she was born. What? Well, my mom's nickname was Belle. Everyone called her Belle. Mm -hmm. And Connie's mom's friend (laughs) uh, passed away. uh, and, And we were like, oh, we'll name her after her. And then we just said Connie Belle. And the doctor came in and was like, cannibal gutter? Like, oh, shit. Like, she was just freshly born. And we're like, oh, shit, we got to fix that. But I kind of wish we didn't fix it. Oh, that's so hardcore. I love it. Oh, man. Cannibal gutter. <laughs> cannibal gutter. That's a good so band name. It to Bella. It's Connie Bella. Yeah. That's, 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 that's an, an old, old Italian, it's an old Italian yeah. cannibal movie. Cannibal gutter. <laughs> cannibal gutter. <laughs> The Brood really moves. I appreciate how tight this movie is, and as is the next one that we're going to talk about, but it, it moves very efficiently and very effectively through a sequence of scenes. There's really no wasted minute. You must have to pay very close attention because even though it's so simple, there's nothing complicated really going on, it's so purposeful. Like every minute of screen time, every interaction, every little bit of dialogue 
Uh, even somebody like uh, the grandmother only has a few lines, but if you miss any of it, you're kind of like, wait, 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 wait. It's just, it's such an effective use of, of time that there is like no fat on this movie whatsoever. When I first heard the name of this movie, I thought that it was about a coffee. <laughs> oh my god. Next movie, I was like, what? <laughs> the next movie was also very misleading too because I was very excited that I was going to see a movie about a zipper because most movies that involve a zipper hey, are some oh. of my favorite things. The and then stuff. turns out, oh, it's a, another movie about a bug? Boo. Oh, like like Maki? <laughs> Folks. <laughs> Uh, you can catch The Brood right now on Criterion, as we said, which is a great value for a streaming service. And I didn't look further than there. I'm assuming this is probably... It was also on HBO. HBO. Oh, HBO okay. Max. Yeah. Oh, was it? Damn. I rented mm-hmm. it on Prime. Oh. Well, he needs some money, probably. Wait, is he still alive? Is Cronenberg yeah. still alive? Yeah, he's in his 70s. Yeah, like, like cool. I just said, his last movie was only five years ago, so... Yeah, people alive. can die within five <laughs> years, Trent. Okay. I think he's seventy-four. Hopefully, that's not the last we will hear from the Bergster, the Crone Man. Eighty-six, the uh, chef kiss of David. Of wait, what's Cronenberg's first name? David, right? Yes. There's too many Daves in my life. That's right. Well, Kat. there's one it, really important one. It's David Cronenberg. That's the I'm topic just, this week. I know David his name. Listen, long story Steve is Gutenberg. Steve Gutenberg. Love him to death. <laughs> um, I had never seen the fly. Well, I'd seen the fly when I was a wee babe, and I remember I had. Uh, I think I just like ran out of the room because I was like, what's happening here? <laughs> but upon my rewatch, all the chef kisses. Um, so it's about uh, Jeff Goldblum is a scientist who is starting his little teleportation thing, if you will. He's inventing teleportation. He's making it happen. And... Uh, Gina Davis is a journalist who then, uh, I guess, not follows him because they're just in his creepy apartment, uh, warehouse apartment thing. Uh, She's documenting him inventing uh, teleportation. He gets a little drunk. Things go a little bit awry. He puts himself into the teleportation machine. But little does he know, there's a wee little babe fly in there. Things go awry from there. 
Um, what a great horror movie. It's so good. Mm. It's so, it's, there's, it's so grotesque, but Mm. it's so funny. Also, it starts off funny, which I think really reels me in personally for a horror movie. And then it goes off the rails from there. Um, but you just see Jeff Goldblum deteriorate before your eyes. You don't know what he's going to look like the next time you see him, which is like, which I thought was really funny. It's like, okay, well, what's the next scene after this weird Gina Davis and her like editor scene? I'm like, well, what's he going to look like in like 15 minutes? Um, Jeff Goldblum is so amazing. I feel like for me personally, you kind of forget how good of an actor Jeff Goldblum is because I think recently he's kind of been like a comical version of himself in whatever film he's in. Mm. Like I just always think of like Jurassic Park when he's just like Ian Malcolm, like mm, dinosaurs, <laughs> life finds a way. But he's really, <laughs> he's so good. Like I just had never realized in the fly, like he's just, he's so like jerky and like, oh, he's just really good. Um, Gina Davis is also wonderful. She really makes you feel, like, empathetic for her character and what she's going through. Like, imagine falling in love with someone, and, like, they're a super great bone, and then you find out that they're fucking turning into this weird creature. And, like, how do you deal with that emotionally, physically? Like, he's still good in bed for a little while. Like, how long do you let that go before he's too grotesque for you to smooch? Um, did I think I was going to weep, literally weep at the end of the fly? I did not. I did not think that was going to be in the cards for me. I I knew the ending just because, you know, like it's a pop culture reference, but I had never seen it actually like unfold. And so I was watching it with my boyfriend, Jimmy, and we're both like in it and he's like laughing and chuckling and then all of a sudden I'm like tears are just streaming down my face as we're watching the credits and he's like trying to talk to me I'm like no I need a second I can't (laughs) can't look at the photos that you're editing right now just give me two seconds play like dry the tears off um I think though the transformation scenes were the big a plus for me in this film because it was just I was literally screaming at my TV when they were happening. I couldn't look away, but I couldn't stop myself from just being like, uh, no! Like, it was the nails. Anyway, can't wait to hear what you guys think. I loved this movie. I love this movie very much. I've seen it a billion times. Um, And the thing about the transformation is it's physical uh, to the maximum extreme, but it's also his personality changes and there are things revealed um, that I'd like to take my section here to talk about uh, things you didn't know about flies before watching the fly. (laughs) So when he starts to become part fly and is fused with the DNA of the fly, he starts off being very hypersexual which I, need, I don't know if you guys have had experiences with flies or maggots or anything like that, but um, flies apparently have quite the sex drive. Mm. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, number two, they're prone to acne. His complexion got worse and worse. Um, and you were talking about her kind of, you know, 
being still with him, even when he was getting really gross and stuff. I think she could have stayed a little longer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no. he was, I mean, he was physically at his peak. I mean, I, I still think that the Fly version of Seth Brundle was better than the original. Um, what? But he got impatient with service people, and I didn't know Flies <laughs> did that either. Uh, waiter. Very impatient. Waiter. Like, yeah, waiter, right, like, right, right now. Uh, they're also good at arm wrestling, mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, which would make sense. It kind of makes sense because of the, uh, like an ant. I think an ant can like lift so much more than its body weight. Mm-hmm. Um, um, they f- they talk very fast, or 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 maybe that's just the way that uh, Jeff Goldblum uh, accentuates his words when he talks. Um, <laughs> but uh, completely unlovable. As soon as he starts getting flied out. He gets a hooker <laughs> at the bar, and he just all of a sudden he's not in love, and you can't love him, and he's just as grimy. Um, but also, the opposite end of that coin, uh, he was pro-life. Oh, true. Which true? Flies are socially conservative. That's what people don't. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Fiscally liberal. Socially conservative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I hadn't seen this in a long time, and I've seen it many times before, but I was kind of blown away by how amazing it is. Not that I didn't know, but it just had been so long. This was a huge, huge hit in 1986 for David Cronenberg. By far his most successful film of all time. It made a ton of money. The catchphrases are still with us. Be afraid, be very afraid, help me. All that all that stuff is like, you know, there's still references to that kind of thing. And I was kind of going into it. It had been so long that I'm thinking, you, you kind of want to think of it as like, well, this is this big mainstream pop culture hit, but not due to any compromise on David Cronenberg's part. This is like... <laughs> the most disgusting, bizarre, over-the-top mainstream hit you could have. And uh, after this, he did a movie called Dead Ringers, which was also a big hit. And then he went and made Crash, M. Butterfly, Naked Lunch. Guy does not care. Success did not change David Cronenberg at all. So when you actually do watch this again, it is like... It's disgusting. It's an absolutely <sighs> disgusting film. Like I was afraid I wouldn't be disgusted enough, you know, because my memories of it were more, were more yeah. mainstream. So by by, you know, two thirds into this, like, ah, oh, yeah, it's disgusting. <laughs> we're, we're still good. <laughs> it is. You know, it's gross. Um, it's very eighties. Uh, one of the first things I noticed was that Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis have the same haircut. So right away, <laughs> can't you know, believe I didn't talk tough. about his hair. It's so uh, good. Oh. He's he's got the ultra high rise pleated pants going on. It's it's very of a time and place. But his performance is incredible. Again, the transformation. I was a little bit sad about the baboons. I don't know where he he's got these like baboons. Just <laughs> I know. I don't I'm know like, where who he's... keeps giving him these monkeys? I don't understand. Where did he that get was them? One plot hole. <laughs> uh, I appreciated. There's a scene where. He explains to Gina Davis why he wears the same exact outfit every day. She thinks he hasn't changed his clothes, but then he just has that same outfit every day. And he gives her the Mark Zuckberg explanation. I don't know if you guys remember, like, 
a few years back, somebody asked Mark Zuckberg why he wears the same hoodie and T-shirt every single day, no matter what he's doing. And he gave the same answer as Dr. Brundle gives in The Fly. It's one less thing to think about. I got other genius stuff on my mind. I got it from Einstein. I He's can't a be lizard about person. It. That's why. I, I totally, I totally get that. Not from the genius part, but just from like one less thing to think about. You got one thing that works. I could be a guy who ends up just doing that, having the one outfit, seven days worth, and that's yeah, uh, that's sure. my thing. So I could relate to that. I envy that. I mean, yeah, that's basically how I am now. I'll have to. <laughs> yeah, but you only have one though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why, I keep, that's why I keep dropping off T-shirts. I'm worried about you guys. Thank you. I pre- see, you know I'm looking. Yeah. I'm wearing the red one. See, it's fine. Rated R, baby. I'm like, you know, I've seen Dave like three times this week. He's wearing the same goddamn thing. <laughs> it's true. So I'll have to go back through the show. But is this the first time that both Mommy and Daddy of the Week are in the same movie? Because there's no one up for debate other than Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. I mean, this movie, it's funny we just talked about Poltergeist because this movie was kind of in the same same time frame as Poltergeist for me where I watched it so much at a young age that I haven't watched it since I was a kid. I mean, I watched The Fly so many times. But like Poltergeist, there are so many scenes that stuck with me. Like, Dave, you mentioned the arm wrestling scene. Holy crap. There's the scene where Jeff Goldblum, Dr. Seth Brundle, is building the, what, the National History Museum of Seth Brundle in his medicine cabinet. (laughs) That scene (laughs) fucked me up. When I was a kid, oh, man, I I still can't watch it. I watched The Fly twice in preparation of this episode. Could not keep my eyes on the the, uh, TV as that scene unfolded. I was like, oh, my God, this is so good, and it's so gross. The only humor in the whole movie is just that Seth Brundle being on brand the whole time. Mm. Like, everyone, everything else is serious, but he's, like, still cracking jokes when he's completely... Deformed Fucked. in half fly. <laughs> Br- Brundle fly when he's Brundle fly. And Kat, during during your opening statement here, as you tried to set the movie up and you were calling it his teleportation thing or tele- <laughs> this, if Jeff Goldblum were here, he would have interrupted you twice and said, okay. telepods, telepods, <laughs> just, like, telepods. just like he did to Gina Davis. <laughs> I am the and, Gina Davis of this podcast. And there's, <laughs> yeah, there's so many subtle Jeff Goldblum things that I love. Like when the movie opens and they're at this gala with all these scientists that are trying to show off their new shit for for the journalism world. And Goldblum is obviously attracted to Gina Davis. He also has this crazy thing he's developing that he hasn't been able to talk to anybody about. And one of the things he tries to sell her on is the fact that he has a cappuccino machine And he reminds her it's not one of these home ones. It's a real one, like at the restaurants with like a hawk on top or something. And I don't know if you notice when he gets her back to the apartment, the the warehouse, his his lair, he's doing Jeff Goldblum and talking and talking and talking and she's talking. He just really subtly actually picks up like the the bird thing on the top of the real espresso machine and just kind of waves it at her for like a half a second. There's just so many like Goldblum on brand moments in this movie. Mm. Yeah, that I definitely would have would not have appreciated as a kid, but this is this is Cronenberg's masterpiece, and I cannot believe, like you said, Trent, that it made sixty million dollars in nineteen eighty six. I all these movies we talk about 
where there's bullshit advertising or maybe it came out at a more timid time. They're like, people were walking out of the theaters. How the hell does this movie not have a legend of people not being able to watch it? Because it is disgusting. It's gross. <laughs> it is. It is. Grody. And also just Gruesome. a big, big shout out to the final scene when uh, he becomes morphed with one of his own pods and he comes out the other end. I think that was the... Uh, the uh, origin of the fly pod. I was happy to get the fly sex that we didn't get when we watched the Indian movie Ega, which was about another, this is our second oh, movie about <laughs> someone transforming into a fly. Now in that yeah. movie, the fly had a female love interest and I was wondering, you know, how are they going to work this? Well, technically, if you think about it, oh, maybe a fly and, and, a, and a woman could gets some something going on. I'm not going to get into that, but you don't have that. You don't have that in Ega. This movie has no qualms whatsoever about hot sex on uh, fly on human sex action. Although he's still mostly in human form, the fly, uh, like Dave said, most people don't know, is the stallion of the insect world. When insects are talking about <laughs> like they had the greatest sex last weekend, they say like, "Oh man, huh, he was a total fly." You know, that's so you get you get a lot of that in this, which is, uh, you know, maggot birth. Let's go. <laughs> the maggot birth. <laughs> uh, that was uh, that was Cronenberg cameoing as the uh, yes. OBGYN. It's, oh, I thought oh. you were the maggot. He was the maggot. Yeah. Cronenberg was the maggot in that. <laughs> the maggot birth is so unbelievably classic and. Uh, again, after Gross. after he so after David Cronenberg cameos as the as the surgeon, the gynecologist, whatever he is, uh, it the doctor, overs- the doctor, well, a surgeon. I don't know what do you call a surgeon who he's credited as gynecologist. Okay, as gynecologist, give he helps birth the maggot child. Mm. Right after this, he made Dead Ringers, starring Jeremy Irons as two twin brother gynecologists. And it gets even. I almost picked that one just because I wanted Cat's take on Dead Riggers. Cat, you, you you don't even know. But this was kind of a foreshadow. <laughs> I thought the maggot birth was kind of a foreshadow to That'll that. That'll just be a Patreon episode of me just watching that movie and just recording myself watching it. We'll get That'd to be it. Funny. There's so many great Cronenberg movies. I felt like this was not only his like masterpiece, but the beginning of like a period of really good stuff. You know, and we also, we just talked about Stephen King adaptations. Um, Cronenberg's film right before The Fly was The Dead Zone with Christopher Walken adapted from the great. Stephen King novel, which was pretty well received and is a great one too. And again, like, well, we'll get to it someday. There's just so many. This movie came out at a time, and we've talked about horror at the Oscars. It came out at a time when the Oscars did not even consider horror movies. Right. However... The guy that did the music, um, oh, I apologize, the effects for this, Chris Wallace, who would go on to direct The Fly 2, which I desperately wanted to watch because I remember it as a kid as well, and you can't find it anywhere. So come on, get, get The Fly 2 out there. But Chris Wallace won the Academy Award for effects on The Fly for this. Mm. So, but, but in my opinion, Jeff Goldblum, at least, if not both Goldblum and Davis, should have been considered for Best Actor and Actress at these Academy Awards. Their performances were astounding. And one of the reasons that their on-screen chemistry probably worked so well is they were dating and they would eventually get married in 1987. Whoa, what? I didn't what? know that. 
What? Wow. Yeah, so what a so beautiful they, story. They met working on like Transylvania Six. That I can't remember the name of the movie. I think Davis had a small part. They met. They started dating. They were looking for all these actresses to play the part of Veronica Ronnie Quaif, and Goldblum actually suggested Davis to Cronenberg, and Cronenberg was like, "Yeah, get your nepotism out of here. I'm all set." But they did. They did out of respect for Goldblum, have her come in for a reading. And they were all blown away. And then a couple other actresses came in to do other readings, and they were like, no one's going to do it as well as Gina Davis. But, yeah, they were a real-life couple while this was filming. They would go on to be married from, like, 1987 to 1991 and then then uh, split up. But, yeah, I, I, I love their so, performance in this. And, yeah, that's probably Brindle why. Brindle Flag got the girl after all. Yeah. <laughs> he really did. Good for him. Well, I think it speaks to Gina Davis's performance in this that I loved her in this because I don't like Gina Davis. I find she's like my least favorite actress of her generation. There's just always been something very annoying to me about Gina Davis. I don't know what it is, but Get she's out of here. Uh, uh, I just I, I don't know. I'm not a fan, but she's incredible in this. Mm-hmm. I, I loved her. She was um, she was very convincing, very believable, very likable character. Um, just a brilliant job. And also, I think Kevin, you started to mention. The score is this is Howard Shore with the London Symphony Orchestra, I think. Which yeah, is, he's done he's done he every Cronenberg flick since like seventy nine. Didn't he do Life Force, which we just talked about also? Um, possibly. I don't have my notes right in front of me. He 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 worked. He he would go on to have major major credentials. He worked with a guy that we might have talked about on this show, uh, Peter Jackson. To do all of the Lord of the Rings movies, the Hobbit films. Oh shit! Uh, and one right, cool no, fact about Howard it. Shore is he was the original music director of Saturday Night Live when it started in 1975. He did that for the first five years of the show. I would encourage anyone who is not familiar with David Cronenberg or not as familiar, if you just throw a dart at his filmography, it doesn't really. If it sounds interesting to you at all. Just watch it. Any any single one, you're going to be in for something really original, something unique, and a real vision, something that's going to be, I'm going to say, uh, on a level above any average, certainly any average uh, genre horror stuff, but uh, especially even later in his career, he still does these bizarre, evil, twisted movies, uh, gets a little bit away from the genre horror, but just throw a dart and you're going to see something spectacular, in my opinion. But can we talk about the baboon? Just go right ahead, yeah. <laughs> no, it was a real baboon. Well, first, first uh, and foremost, yeah, I could, <laughs> look. I could, first yeah. and foremost, here, here's one oh, issue. They used a real baboon, dope. <laughs> <laughs> no, not that would have been some amazing facts inside out. <laughs> look, look. Here's one. Here's one issue Listen. I have with the brilliant Seth Brundle. Is why would you start with baboons? Why not start with like a fucking rat? <laughs> like why? Um, he you? actually started with a cat, and it didn't make the final cut. There's oh, a cat the scene. Cat. Yeah, you can find that. There's a there's a documentary on YouTube that will show you a bunch of the scenes they cut from this. But the baboon was a real baboon named Typhoon, and probably shouldn't be a shock to anyone. But you can't train baboons, so it's not like he was a. It was a baboon. They're not trainable. And this fucking thing had the whole crew so scared. One day, it was scared by some of the flashing lights, and it freaked out and broke a door down to get out. The only person other than the trainer or the the handler that could win it over was Jeff Goldblum. Apparently, Jeff Goldblum is 6'4", 
And he built a relationship intimidating this baboon, but loving it. So the scenes in the movie where you see the baboon like jump up and give him a hug and like the scene when he's drunk and rambling and you don't realize he's talking to the baboon until the camera comes around on the chair. Those were all like legit things. He actually had a relationship with this baboon on set, which I thought was really cool. I thought that was remarkable too, watching it because first of all, he's got this full size baboon at that point just loose in in the loft. It's not even yeah. in a cage. And secondly, usually when you see experimental monkeys in film, you see monkeys, little cuddly guys. And this thing is a beast. And those mm-hmm. scenes where it, it runs into his arms and he's he's holding it with this <laughs> giant baboon. I'm like, man, how did how they do this? It, it should be, you should point out too that the fly, this is actually, well, they call it a remake because Kurt Newman did a version of this in 1958 starring Vincent Price. It's based on a short story that appeared in Playboy in 1957 written by George Langalon. But I don't think this is a remake because if you watch the Vincent no. Price one, it is, it is nothing like this. So the screenwriter credit goes to Chuck Pogue who did the first draft of the screenplay. But when they brought Cronenberg on, he basically completely rewrote the script. But he insisted that Chuck Pogue get a screenwriting credit because he says, without his first draft, I wouldn't have been inspired to write the version I did. So solid moment from Cronenberg. And just a little history on the fact that uh, that this movie came from a story in Playboy. And and you, someone mentioned the, the taglines we got, be afraid, be very afraid. That line was written by Mel Brooks. Do you guys realize that this movie was produced by Mel Brooks? Yeah, right. Fuck yeah, yeah. Off. Yeah, I yeah he he, he keeps his name. So he did David Lynch's The Elephant Man, but he'll keep his name off his non comedic things so that people don't expect it to be comedy. But right. he was involved in it, and he came up with the line that Gina Davis says be afraid, be very afraid. <laughs> 